for the, the invite, Stacey. Um, um, I found it really interesting, and it's very it's flattering to be invited to a conference. But I have to say that increasingly I'm invited to aesthetics conferences in the UK to be the kind of curmudgeonly voice of, you know, because I think sometimes you need a contrast. So when I was at the beginning of starting out in philosophy, and I used to get invited to conferences for my exciting, you know, going forward type cutting edge views. But now I find, you know, I'm there to be the contrast, you know, because otherwise it'd be like there's all this exciting stuff, and why would it be exciting if there wasn't someone who's really conservative against which I have to be philosophical that's my new role. So I'm going to say some rather general things which won't um, engage that much with the, the previous um, the details of the previous papers, but engage, I suppose, with the overall kind of project. Um, so feel free to move on to the details in the general discussion uh, afterwards. So, I mean, there was, um, there used to be something called uh, ordinary language philosophy um, or linguistic philosophy and there was also, there was also conceptual analysis philosophy uh, that weren't it's not quite clear how they were, were related to each other and they don't really have many um, advocates today there are a few but they're really far and few between um, and I suppose the main problems of, of those movements at the time was that the, the, the sort of rather extreme claims they made to exhaust um, philosophy. Uh, and so that's what people are sort of were worried about with those, with those projects, looking back on them. Um, but there are questions about language and concepts which you can ask as part uh, of philosophy. Um, and so it seems like that facts about language or concepts could play a role um, given other premises um, in arguments uh, bearing on traditional philosophical questions which are traditionally metaphysical or about the nature of certain mental acts or questions. <coughs> okay, um, so, so I'm, I'm sort of placing the project in the context of um, the history there. Now, you might be interested in the language in a, in a certain area of, of thought. Um, and my view... Uh, uh, I've got a bit of a view here, so I just give me a bit of a break. I just just have a just have a bit of attitude about this. I mean, in my view, um, the main task is to understand the, the the area of language in question in terms of what I think is the right approach, which I can't go into particularly, which is evolutionary game theory, um, which I think is the most plausible general view of linguistic meaning, uh, which is the one that was originally suggested. Um, by Wittgenstein if, uh, as a result of his comment, his discussions with Thrapper, the uh, economist. But this was then articulated by David Lewis in convention and pretty much ignored in philosophy since then by most uh, philosophers of language. Or there's a few people, Millikan and um, Skirms, who are still pursuing it. Um, so that's the general uh, view, I think. But, but when you come to specific features in local areas of language, then um, the, I mean, there's, the, the, it's a quite general program. Um, but then you, there are specific thing that, things that need to be understood. So it hasn't really been um, applied, as far as I know, to logical constants or um, predication, which are pretty unexplored at the moment within that program. 
Um, but also, I think, in an expressive area of thought, that it hasn't been um, explored. And where I take it by expressive areas, I'm meaning uh, areas like niceness, yumminess, tastiness, which people have used, or funniness. So I think it needs development there. Whether aesthetic talk should be um, understood in that way is highly controversial, um, but that aesthetic talk should be understood in like um, these um, more obviously expressive uh, cases. It's controversial. I'm glad to see actually some of the speakers. When I first saw the papers, I thought, oh, they're just assuming this, but it's they like the personal um, taste cases. But actually, I'm pleased to see that some of the, some of the speakers are questioning that. Um, uh, okay, so, um, right. Uh, I think I'm going to uh, get some of this. Okay, no, okay. So suppose you've got two people disagreeing about a case of the agreeable. I'm going to use Kant's terms, the agreeable, um, or the deliciousness of something. Now, that's of course, the logical form of the the sentence and perhaps the judgment, if you can talk about logical form of the judgment, is predicative, it's that X is F. Um, now you might explicitly go subjective about this um, after a moment, you, um, after uh, a disagreement, and you might then, people might retreat, this came up in the question, so I'm repeating something that's been uh, discussed. You might retreat to a, an explicitly subjective assertion, well I find it. Um, F. Uh, um, but that's going to be um, at a different point in the discussion. And I do think that to, 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 to speak to kind of meta philosophy, you know, there are empirical questions you can ask about that, which are to, to reveal evidence for a. Uh, well, the, I think the way that the conversation goes does reveal a difference in the normative demand. Um, which um, are consequential on the different kind of judgments involved. Um, the, depth, the depth grammar, if you like, of judgments of the agreeable and of the beautiful might be is going to be revealed um, in the way the conversation goes and how quickly you retreat. Um, the more robust or stringent the normative demand, the, the less um, you'll be inclined to retreat in the conversation. Um, uh, to the subjective judgment, but as it came out in the pre some of the previous questions, and, um, um, it's not you shouldn't infer from that that the judgment is to be given a subjective interpretation or response dependent or personal variable um, analysis. That's, an, that's another question. Um, uh, so I take it to be obvious that uh, uh, some kind of expressive. Um, uh, account of a discourse or thought is very different from a response dependent or a relativist or a subjective thought or one where you're really talking about language um, or you're talking about ourselves, whereas actually you're talking about the ice cream, is it really tasty or delicious, is it really boring? Um, I think those are different kinds of theory. Um, uh, right, now, now Kant made this famous distinction, which is what I want to focus on, between the beautiful and the agreeable. And one difference, not the only one, and he also talks about disinterestedness um, in that, that context, and some of what he says is quite plausible there, but there is a difference in normative demand of each kind of, of thought. 
Um, and he, he thought that the judgment of beauty came to kind of, a, a kind, it's not his term, a kind of correctness um, in judgment, that judgments of the agreeable um, do not. And so I think you could map this onto some of the language of faultless disagreement, if you like. Um, so this claim, I think this distinction is supposed to be one about folk aesthetics and to give um, you know, credit to those who are pursuing this. Um, I'm actually fine with this. You might have wanted me to be more sceptical, but actually I think you know, um, that this is folk aesthetics or what it's actually like can be um, verified empirically. That's fine. Um, uh, but so, but uh, the claim must be that the difference, uh, the difference in these kind of judgments uh, manifests itself in various ways. Right. Okay. So now I'm going along, and you're thinking, oh, you know, he's on board with all this. But <coughs> but why should it do so? Yes, it gets manifest. <coughs> yes, a difference has got to show show itself some way. Um, it could be mine, actually. I did, so I did put it on. I did put it on time. It's a new phone. Yes, there's a difference, consequential, on these different types of judgment, but why should it be manifest in either the semantics or the syntax of the language of the beautiful or agreeable? And this sort of, I think, is kind of assumed, I'm not sure I could give a chapter of this, in some of the speakers today. It might be, you know, it might be, it might be manifest in other ways, perhaps in the way the conversation goes in the kind of dialogues um, I was imagining. Um, so there is this um, there is this issue. There's this issue in the in the literature which I haven't really followed, but um, I think Tim um, mentioned it uh, and also Isidore about the problem of disagreement, uh, where you've got a disagreement over what's tasty, and yet neither side seems to be making a mistake. But how come they can still be disagreeing? And I think um, Tim particularly um, found it a sort of paradox. I think some people writing about this have found it. Paradox. You probably know the literature better than me. Um, Mark Schroeder, in his Beam Four book, um, he makes a rather nice point as he always does that kind. Of, uh, um, I mean, there's a there's a sense of inconsistency, or di which I think is partly what we're getting at when we're talking about disagreement, um, where we want to say there's a disagreement between the. Um, the attitudes, um, or between the likings, um, which is which is not, um, <coughs> or a disagreement perhaps between the judgments, which is not that's not the same thing as the disagreement or an inconsistency uh, between the contents in question. Um, so, which is what you have in the case of why do belief people who have, disagree about one person who believes P and the other believes. Not be. I mean, they disagree in belief because of the disagreement in the content, because there's a opposite, they have opposite concepts, contents. But it's, if you say um, imagining P or supposing P and supposing or imagining not P, I mean, those are not inconsistent mental acts, not inconsistent attitudes you can have, um, even though the contents are inconsistent. Um, and there's a puzzle there, and what, you know, when you search, you know, if you're not a a realist um, about the in the area, 
and I'm not a realist about I'm a realist about aesthetics and you know everything I can be a realist about, but not about niceness uh, and, and funniness particularly or, or tastiness. <coughs> if you don't want to be a realist there, the puzzle there is to find a sense of inconsistency or disagreement where it doesn't just evolve um, from the inconsistent contents in question, which in the case of belief, that, that explains why the, the, the attitudes themselves are then uh, can, you can then disagree with someone with a different, with the opposite attitude. Um, and that's a sort of puzzle for anyone. Um, I'm not saying it's a, an impossible puzzle, but that's sort of one of the main tasks. Um, suppose you've got a predicate uh, corresponding to, let's call it a quasi-property. Um, there's no reason why there shouldn't be disagreement or inconsistent between those um, employing this predicate um, between the attitudes in the relevant sense. In sense. And yes, it has to explain, you have to explain, for example, why is intending P and intending not P, or suppose being pleased that P or being pleased that not P um, are inconsistent in this sense, um, uh, unlike supposing or imagining. Um, but still, what it, I mean, there's work to be done, but there's a kind of disagreement there. But I think the point is it has no connection with this idea that there are these very the quite robust norms on the judgments, such of norms of correctness, such that one of you is correct and incorrect. I can't see why that's the only explanation. That's the one which works for belief, but um, there's no reason to think that that's the only kind of explanation you can have a relevant kind of disagreement or inconsistency uh, we're in search of. Um, so I think intending that P and intending but not P are inconsistent in roughly this sense. Um, which has nothing to do with being mistaken or not. Um, okay, so that's, a, I think, introducing some of these issues. Um, I think I'm going to... I've got some material here commenting on the talks. I think a lot of it's actually come up in the questions, so I won't spend very much time on, on this. Um, there is this question, but I think I, I, I want to say something about Sibley and... The, the general question of the conference, you know, what is an, uh, an aesthetic, aesthetic adjective which people have been asking? I think, um, you know, here's a quote from one of the papers, what makes an adjective an aesthetic adjective? Uh, I, I, to be a bit sceptical, I'm not quite sure this is an, an intelligible question or a good question. I'd want to separate two stages, and here I read Stacey's one of her questions. I mean, I think there's a good question, what makes a concept an aesthetic concept? And then you can ask, are there words who have a dedicated primary function, which is to express, in a different sense of expression, express aesthetic concepts? Um, uh, so, but, but I think this question about, you know, what is it to be an aesthetic adjective without this other question about what is an aesthetic judgment which an aesthetic attitude might in its proper use express. I don't think it's much of a question. So if you want to be a bit sceptical there. Um, um, I mean a lot of people have drawn attention to the, the case of delicacy or other words which get used aesthetically and also not. So it's a sort of bad question, is it? An aesthetic adjective? I mean, um, 
Um, so it's, it's, it's what I'm worried about here is the general sort of desire or search for linguistic criteria of aestheticness. Um, I mean, why should there be any? And if that's someone's project, I'm not sure that isn't a false project. Um, so here's, I've got a quotation here, which I bet no, I wonder if anyone here has read this. Um, so this is going back to, this is Sibley. Um, and I, I'm always, I once met him, and I'd love to have asked him about this. But, um, he, so this is, um, and I, if, you'll probably only get one thing from this talk of mine, which is you'll probably go and read this. It's footnote one. It's a footnote <laughs> of aesthetic concepts right at the beginning. Has anyone consciously read the footnote? Yeah, oh, a few people, great. I'm not surprised. Actually, but it's really interesting. And of course, he's talking about aesthetic words. And he says, and then there's a footnote. And you know, footnotes are funny things, because it could be that a referee said to him, well, what about blah, blah, blah. And then you go, okay, I suppose I've got to put a footnote in. I'd love to know the origin of it. He says, um, I'm going to speak, I shall speak loosely, of a, this is Sibley, of aesthetic terms, aesthetic terms. Even when, because the word sometimes has other uses, it would be more correct to speak of its use as an aesthetic term. So there's simply, he actually doesn't really want to speak of aesthetic adjectives at all there, but aesthetic uses of adjectives. Um, um, so a lot of, so uh, people here have drawn attention to um, the cases like delicacy, which are used uh, in aesthetic context, but also get used to, you know, delicate um, eggshells, literally as well. But another case which um, hasn't been noticed, but I think is also important, that the aesthetic, uh, the beautiful, obviously, I think sometimes gets used um, non-aesthetically. So, I mean, these cases are disputable, but I think a beautiful hand at cards um, or a beautiful takeover of theatre cases, I don't think there's anything particularly aesthetic about those. So I think you can also use those in this extended or metaphorical senses. So I think it, it the, you know, there's a disconnection both ways between language and thoughts here. So I'm sort of against, you know, I'm, I'm sort of anti the philosophy of language as a, a sort of linguistic philosophy in these ways of giving us too easy a, a route to, I think, what we're really interested, what we are really interested in, or the tradition in aesthetics has been traditionally interested in, in as far as I speak, for the traditional view from Plato to Kant and up to um, much of the 20th century. So, you know, there's a bit of a disconnection there, even the other way, that I think the beautiful can, beauty as a word can be used in non-aesthetic um, um, descriptions, descriptions as well. Okay, um, gradeability, I think I won't say much about that. Um, I think does vagueness all over the shop. I mean, um, and I, yeah, okay. Um, right, I'm just gonna skip lots of things here. Um, more detailed comments, and I'll just go on to um, some, if you like, back to the back to where I think that this, what I was worrying about before, um, and I think connect with the some of the methodological things being raised um, at this conference. Uh, so there's a question about the conceptual features of a study thought. Um, and so I would claim, so suppose you ask me that, you say, Nick, well, what do you think? You know, tell us about the concept of beauty and the other aesthetic concepts, uh, where you think of those as concepts as things being deployed in thought, and might have a linguistic need expressed. 
I'd say, well, um, I'd, I'd pick on a, a bunch of things. One of them I talked about, which is the kind of aspiration to correctness, which you don't get in the personal taste cases, or not as robustly, might be a question of degree. Uh, I would pick on mind independence, dependence from the non-aesthetic, supervenience and logic, logical structure, a bunch of five features. Kant also has um, issues about motivation and the will to add to this. Um, so there are features um, that I think pretty much everyone needs to explain who's theorizing about the nature of aesthetic judgment um, and aesthetic thought generally. Um, I think that, so basically if you're a realist, you're doing pretty well with all these features, you're in a, best, a really good position if you think these are cognitive judgments about um, a domain of instantiation via the realm of mind-independent properties, you, you're, except with supervenience, there's some argument about that, you're in a good position to capture them, other positions, other, other views have more of a um, trouble capturing them. Um, and uh, so that's something expressivists have got to do. My own view is to be extremely sceptical about any of these response-dependent views, that, any, that as soon as you start sticking a personal variable in there, I think you're immediately not going to be able to, this came out with some discussion, you're going to have huge problems explaining our ordinary aesthetic life, the fact that we disagree as we do. I don't think, sorry, I don't think we're really talking about language when we're disagreeing about, uh, you know, there's an urge to change the subject. So. Uh, when we're disagreeing about what's tasty or boring. I don't think we're really negotiating about language. There's a way of changing the subject, so I think expressivism <laughs> is doing better than those views. I'm just saying that's my view. Um, but I think um, what's a fair question, and I think you know, this is what um, experimental uh, aesthetics could have a role here, is to say, well, how do we know that these are the features? I mean, someone might say to me, this is why we need some sort of empirical uh, Exploration. How do we know that these are the features? Now I might say, well, look, Kant, Hume and Kant said so. Uh, that might be one answer. Go study. You know. um, but so what are the marks of normative demand here? Um, so I want to end by sort of reflecting on this. How do we spot a normal work uh, in our thought or talk? It's kind of an anthropological question. But it bears on, you know, we can't just, I can imagine Aaron saying to me, for example, you might say, Nick, you're just assuming that this is how it is with folk aesthetics. What is folk aesthetics? Should be explored. Well, consider um, religious or sporting norms. You know, have the offside rule or the religious rule. You might say, you know, at New Year, you must ring the bell 108 times. I think that's one form of Buddhism. That's crucial. At New Year. Um, now, they're not always obeyed. So that's crucial. There are corrupt referees who might not stop play, you know, when uh, the offside rule is offended against. Uh, you might not care about a, a religious practice. But the mark of a norm at work uh, is some kind of regulation of, of conformity or non-conformity, I think I'm exploring here. In many cases, play is stopped uh, when the offside rule is breached, and a, a, there might be a religious rule that you don't shave on a Saturday or you're supposed to pray five times a day. And that's not <coughs> clear that there are, there might not be particular sanctions because you might not be in that community, but there might be rewards 
um, in terms of conformity, or rewards of conformity and social acceptance. Um, so we're spot, trying to spot norms at work. Um, so think about smiles and frowns. Um, they could be symptomatic of rules at work. So you think about uh, back to language game theory and Wittgenstein's early exploration of it. Um, in his positive theorizing, of course, Wittgenstein, I might use a metaphysician, positive theorizing. Anyway, that's not enough. Um, so you've got this feedback loop that's created between teacher and pupil um, by which um, language is imparted. And usually it does, you know, mother to child, there'll be smiles and frowns, positive and negative rewards, by which you create feedback loops, which you get the right kind of dynamical structure, whereby you then get an institution, which is really what words meaning is, according to that kind of view. Um, uh, so you get correctness and incorrectness in the language. It's, it's the mark of it there, and also the way it's imparted, those ideas, are by means of um, regulation. Now, I don't want to imply the rule of rule following is public and shared and communal. I think you can follow a rule privately. Um, but even then, I think it's crucial for um, um, people like Descartes and Kant have rules for the direction of the mind, which are sort of private rules at work um, in our reasoning. Um, but then, even then, there's got to be some kind of self-regulation. Um, um, take a semi-public semi rule, like shouldn't step on cracks in the pavement. Um, no one else might, might know or care about that rule, but I strive to conform to it and take sort of steps, sorry, pun, uh, to, to avoid transgression. So there's a self-regulation that seems to be a mark of accepting the norm. Now, let's come back to, um, I want to finish off there uh, by thinking about, um, you think that people are reflecting on the nature of aesthetic and thought and agreeable thought. Well, take, consider, consider Descartes, or consider what Descartes, someone like Descartes is going to say about something like pain. You might say, well, there's this view of trans, this idea of transparency or self-intimating or um, what's the word in Mark Johnson? Um, revelatory, it's just revealed to you. In having the pain, you know what it is. And what's more, we know what it is, and we know there's nothing else to know about what it is apart from what we've got in experiencing it. That's roughly Descartes' approach, um, and, and maybe Nagel's as well. Well, maybe, okay, he might or might not be right about that kind of approach, um, but you could ask the same thing about um, other areas, say about the nature of aesthetic. So take the nature, the nature of aesthetic thought, which we're interested in. Aesthetic. What is it to make an aesthetic judgment or a judgment of the agreeable, judgments of personal taste? Well, why should the, I suppose, then my question, slightly sceptical question, uh, is why should the nature of that thought or that difference between the two be manifest in the syntax or in linguistic matters or even in our concepts? I mean, language disguises thought in many cases. You can have similar semantic or conceptual surface, which can be explained by quite different psychological stories, different psychological states or uh, mechanisms. So, I mean, it's not, maybe the difference between the agreeable and the beautiful is not, it's going to be manifest somehow in the surface um, of those, um, somehow, but why, uh, so I think there's no, but I think there's no escaping the traditional philosophy and science, semi 
psychological approach, if you like, to probing these kinds of mental acts and states are involved. Maybe there's disinterestedness in one case and not in the other, for example. Um, maybe it's manifest in a different kind of conversation that you, that you have. Um, um, but I don't see why I don't see why it should be manifest in the um, the language itself, or even available by conceptual reflection uh, in the surface uh, which is available to us. Um, so I think there's so I'm just, I, I'm not saying it's not there could be marks there, but I see no reason why um, the the things we're after should just come with linguistic uh, saying hey look at me you know I'm Besides, you're a linguistic marker for all these things which we're philosophically interested in. I just expressed some skepticism about that. That's all.